All right, if you want to join me, I want to start today's study in Matthew chapter 16 and read a familiar portion for us. Uh, we studied it in detail when we were going through the Gospel of Matthew, but I want to use this as the launching point for what's on my heart for today. Uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be pausing. We've already kind of paused it just by default, but I'm going to be continuing to pause our ongoing study through the book of Acts. We we in our last study we finished chapter three. There's still the rest of the book ahead of us, of course. I do intend to get back to it, but I think I'm not going to get back to it until I return from Kenya, Lord willing, in September. And um, I may not be quite finished with what's on my heart today by then. So at the very least, Lord willing, we'll be back in Acts in October. But in the meantime, I've got something on my heart, and I wanted to share a little bit about why I have it on my heart. Uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Sundays ago, I did a, a message on, uh, which we didn't, in case you're wondering, we did not upload to Sermon Audio, but it is recorded and it's available for any of the members of the church to listen to. You can talk to David if you'd like to hear it. Uh, I did a message in relationship to us passing three anniversaries. Uh, One anniversary, the biggest one, was our 35th year as a church, and then uh, the other two were in relationship to my personal uh, story and my personal service to the Lord in the context of the church, my 35th year as a pastor, and my 25th year as the lead pastor of the church. And so um, during that message, I, at the very end, just just carved out a, a couple of brief moments to share a, a really quick kind of evaluation of where the church is at and, and where I'm at in terms of my service and ministry to the church. And um, I don't regret doing that uh, short evaluation, but uh, since then, the last two weeks, I've just felt like it wasn't adequate, wasn't sufficient. Uh, there was more to be said along those lines, and so I want to say more as a result. I want to take the time to do that. And I want to start us here in Matthew 16, which is kind of the explanation behind why I am doing this. So uh, let's read from this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, starting in Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, and they all understood this was a self-reference. It was, uh, the Son of Man was his most common Old Testament designation pointing forward to the fulfillment of what his mission was all about. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, the people that he was ministering to, the crowds that he was ministering to, were still struggling at this point. We're 16 chapters into the Gospel of Matthew. They're still struggling to rightly identify just who is this man? You know, what's, what, is, what is the real spiritual identification of him? And he said to them, but now speaking to his disciples, they should know better. They should have a clearer perception of who he is. Um, but who do you say that I am? And in this, Simon Peter has his what I can only, and I think I even described it this way when we were back in Matthew 16, his most shining moment as a disciple because he had some weak moments. He had some struggling moments. He had some failure moments, but this was his best moment. Uh, Simon Peter replied, you are 
the Christ, which is just another way of saying in a more Hebrew format, you are the Messiah, the specially anointed and chosen one of God, the unique one in all of history who has come to fulfill a great purpose that no other, no matter how great they were throughout the entire duration of the old covenant, no matter the greatest of them, even as great as Abraham, even as great as Noah, even as great as Moses, even as great as King David, none of them could actually fulfill. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and he uses a word for small stone. You are Peter, and on this, now he uses the word for gigantic stone, like a boulder. On this boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there's so much to say here and I dedicated when we were going through Matthew, there was a minimum of an entire hour study that we did on this portion. But I just want to focus our attention on this one phrase that Jesus uses when he's speaking to Peter and the disciples beyond him. When he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And this is the first time in scripture, the very first time that this key word church is ever used. And it's certainly not the last time. From this point forward in the New Testament, the word church is going to become a common term. It's going to become a frequently used term. And when the term was spoken by the Lord Jesus, and as those people in their cultural context heard it, they weren't thinking like we typically think about the buildings that are on various street corners throughout our communities. He uses a word which refers to an assembly of called out ones, people that, are, that were previously part of the general population but heard a call. And having heard that call, they, not everyone did, but they chose to respond to that call and they came out from whatever life circumstance they were previously engaged in and they gathered together because of this call. That's the church, the word that he uses here. But I want, it, I want us to see that what he says is, I will build my church. And essentially, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving what we call in, in modern cultural terms, a mission statement. And this common, this common terminology, even among churches to this day, It's rare to go to a church website and not see somewhere on the church website a mission statement, kind of like a a brief summary of what are we here for? Why do we gather together? What's this all about, this church thing that we share and that we do? Jesus is giving his mission statement. And the essence of his personal mission The reason he came to this world, the reason he died on the cross, the reason he did all of the ministry he did leading up to the cross, including both the miraculous works that he did and all of the teachings that he did and all of the gospel that he proclaimed, it's all leading up to this because this is his number one priority, period. There is no other greater priority in the heart and the mind of the Lord Jesus. I will build my church. 
Now, I, I, the last thing I want to focus your attention on is this one single small little word that could easily be overlooked. And you get it, you understand the implications of it, but it's my job to emphasize it. I will build my church. And what that tells me about the church, and I'm talking not about every church on the face of the earth today or for the last 2,000 years of church history that's identified themselves as church, but church as the Lord sees it and as the Lord identifies it and as the Lord defines it. I will build my church, meaning the church belongs exclusively to him. It's his special project. It's what he's most concerned about it's what he's most attached to it's what he most cares about of all of the things that are going on in the face of the earth nothing matters more to the lord jesus than his church and building it now in building it he's using old testament imagery and i won't have time to develop all this today i'm going to be doing some of that in the thursday night studies as we're looking at christ in the old testament but we're talking about tabernacle and later temple imagery. Building the house of God in the earth. The church being the new covenant fullness of expression of that tabernacle temple connection to the Lord himself. The church being his house. But when the tabernacle was to be constructed all the way back to the Exodus and the days of Moses, and later when the temple in the days of King David and then his son Solomon was to be constructed, how was it to be built? It wasn't simply God saying to Moses, I, I need a house, figure something out and go build me a good one. And he, neither did he say that to King Solomon. In both cases, the Lord gave a specific blueprint, first to Moses for the building of the tabernacle, and then to Solomon. It was revealed to his father, King David, but passed on to Solomon with the express responsibility of build it, as, as it's emphasized back in the book of Exodus for the tabernacle, build it exactly according to the plan that has been revealed. And so the Lord Jesus is at work in history and it has been so for the last 2,000 years to build his church but he's building it according to a very specific blueprint and any building that is not according to that blueprint is ultimately going to be loss lots of effort lots of resources lots of personal time and energy invested but with no eternal value connected to it this is why later in the book of Corinthians, Paul is describing the, the day of judgment that even the church will face and even the individual members of the church. And essentially what Paul says is, if you build and add to the church of God, there's going to be an evaluation of how you've added to it. And you're going to, be, you're going to discover that you've either added to it in a wood, hay, and straw kind of way, which is going to be placed in a fiery test of the Lord's own evaluation and you'll discover it's all burned up and lost meaning you you won't have anything to show for all that you invested in your idea your concept of what church life was supposed to be or it's going to ultimately see, be seen as as building according to the to the valuation of the Lord, gold, silver, and precious stone kind of additions to the church. Those are additions that actually are according to the blueprint of the Lord. So all of this is in my mind and heart as we're 
just passing our 35th anniversary as a church. And my consideration is how much of what we've built is according to the Lord's blueprint. And that's, that's really the only concern that should be on my heart as a shepherd. And it's the only concern that should be on your heart as a committed member of the church. And so what I want to do is take a short period of time. I'm not talking about today, but I'm over the next few Sunday services, Lord willing, and consider this together with you. Turn with me, if you would, from Matthew then to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And I want to read the first vision that John the Apostle received from the Lord that becomes the beginning, the introduction to the entire sequence, the series of heavenly visions he was given, which we now call the book of Revelation. But the first in this series, the first in this sequence of visions is in, you can make a good solid case theologically, it's the most important one of all. So let's read from Revelation 1, verse 9, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 1. And I'm going to pause before we uh, head into chapter 2 and chapter 3, because chapter 2 and chapter 3 are really the focal point of what I hope to focus our attention on over these next few weeks. But Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and he's referring here about a current struggle that many true believers were experiencing in his day, which was a early persecution of Christianity by the surrounding Roman culture joined with the surrounding Jewish culture. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is a, this is a, a little island right off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he wasn't there, John wasn't there for a vacation. He wasn't there, you know, to just stretch out on the sandy beaches of Patmos and enjoy uh, some time away. He was there as a prisoner. It was a Roman prison island. And generally speaking, the worst offenders were uh, placed on the island of Patmos because it was kind of like an ancient version of, and this is no longer functioning as a prison, but how many are familiar with the, the prison uh, right off of the coast of uh, Sacramento, uh, San Francisco in the Bay of San Francisco there? Alcatraz, right. So it's, this is an ancient version of Alcatraz. What made Alcatraz in, in, in the day so effective, and the claim is you know, that no one ever escaped from Alcatraz successfully. There are many that tried. Um, the, what made it so successful, it was just isolated. It was out in, in the ocean, and you might escape from your prison cell, but it was going to be hard to make it back to the mainland unless you had a big boat to, to take you because of the, the choppy waters between the island and the mainland. So he's on the island as a prisoner, and he was a prisoner there, as he testifies here, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was there for one reason only. He was preaching the gospel, and the Roman authorities didn't want him to continue to be heard. So they isolated him on this island. But while he was isolated, he wasn't isolated, of course, from the Lord. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. That book is now what we have is the book of Revelation. And send it to the seven churches. Now the Lord has seven specific churches in mind, which he's about to name. They correspond to seven nearby cities. These are not the only seven churches in existence in those days. These are just the seven closest churches to where John was imprisoned on Patmos. These are not on the island. These churches, these cities, were all on the mainland just directly across from the island of Patmos. So the Lord tells him, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now these seven were named in that order because it was actually a postal circuit of the Roman Empire. As letters were written and sent, they had a kind of rudimentary postal service. And in this postal service, the the route would take the messenger carrying the letters from the island first to the city of Ephesus, and then in a circular pattern, he would arrive finally back to the city of Laodicea, which was nearby to Ephesus, but in this circular pattern. Verse 12, John's vision continues. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning... I saw, what's interesting is he doesn't see the one speaking first. He first sees something unexpected, probably even unexpected to John. I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Now for John, who is biblically literate and certainly old covenant familiar, he would have immediately known and understood what he was seeing and why, at least to some extent, he was seeing it. The lampstand was a specific item of furniture in God's house. One lampstand in the original house of God, which was the tabernacle. It was in the outer of the two rooms of God's house in the common living area where there was also a table for eating and an altar for incense. But there was one light source in that house, which was the lampstand. Later, in the the temple of solomon which was a much greater and larger and expansive structure there were actually 10 identical lampstands that were established there so john hears the voice a heavenly voice speaking to him and turning to see who's speaking he doesn't first see the one speaking but he sees seven golden lampstands and then in verse 13 in the midst of the lampstands He sees one like a son of man. This, of course, is the Lord Jesus in a heavenly revelation to John there on the island. I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe. And by the way, as I read these details, every detail is theologically significant. I just won't have time today to develop them. He says, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Each one of these details has correspondence to specific Old Testament prophetic passages pointing forward to Christ. And then in verse 17, when John saw him, this was his, his um, unchosen reaction, meaning he was impacted by the vision of the Son of Man, and he was so deeply impacted, he just reacted without any thought or decision connected to it. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. So here the Lord, in consideration of John's present perspective, knew that John would immediately be thinking as he saw the lampstands about the temple and the tabernacle of the Lord, but may not understand why are you showing me this? The Lord makes sure John gets the point of the vision. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, meaning one angel per each of the seven churches that was previously identified starting with Ephesus. We'll talk more next, starting next week about the angels of the churches. And then this last line, the one that I want to focus our attention on today, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we see in this that the lampstand is serving originally in its in its in its first appearance in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, and its later appearance in the temple. It's serving a very practical purpose in both of those structures as a light source. But it's also serving a prophetic and symbolic purpose as it points forward to something greater than itself. And what they were pointing forward to, the lampstands in the temple, is they were pointing forward to the churches of the new covenant the churches of the New Testament era, with each lampstand symbolizing or indicating symbolically a church. And what I would want to call, in the context of my concerns today and over the next few weeks, a true church. Now, we've studied before, it's been some time, but these studies are still available on on Sermon Audio. We've studied before the symbolism of the lampstand. And we did so in some detail and developed as we looked at, because there are portions in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Exodus, that go into great detail describing exactly how the lampstand itself was to be constructed. Just like the temple had, and the tabernacle had a blueprint for construction, the lampstand had a blueprint. It was to be made a very specific way. And ultimately, what we see in the way it was described in its original construction is it was an, a symbolic image of a tree. And the connection is it was meant to represent the tree of life. And at the same time, it was, 
practically serving the purpose of providing light because lamps were to be placed on each of its seven branches, light for those structures which were the house of God. And so here, the lampstands are seen in a dual, a dual revelatory purpose, the source of light and the source of life because they represent, again, the tree of life. But the lampstands are, according to the Lord Jesus here, the churches. And so the idea is, why did the Lord, as he gives his very first revelation of himself to John, that, that amazing and, and heavenly description of, of how he appeared to John there on the island of Patmos, why did he choose to reveal himself in the midst of, of seven golden lampstands, which symbolically represent the seven churches that he's to send the letters to. If John were making the link, and I'm sure he did, but you and I are to make this link as well, we're meant to think again about the temple and about the tabernacle. So let's go for a moment back to the Old Testament. Let me share with you three passages. They're all on the same basic theme. They're all making the same basic point. The first one is in Exodus chapter 27. But these are passages about the construction of the tabernacle, but specifically in relationship to the lampstand and the lamps upon those lampstands. So the lampstand is a church in the Lord's symbolic portrayal of his purposes. The lamps, individual lamps that are set on the seven branches represent individual believers within those churches. So let's read this with that understanding. Exodus 27, verse 20 and 21. This is the Lord speaking to Moses, giving him instructions. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you beaten, pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. That means there was two rooms, remember, in the tabernacle of the Lord, also two rooms in the temple later. And those two were the two basic rooms of God's house. The innermost room was the private room, what we would now call the bedroom, if we were thinking in terms of our own homes. The private area, where only those that were in the family could, could enter. And there was a curtain separating the private area from the public area. The public area is the area you would invite friends into. You would invite acquaintances into. You would have people over for dinner, for instance. And so here, this specific lampstand was to be erected in the public area outside of the curtain that separated the inner from the outer. So in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, that's the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron and his son shall tend it. That's the lampstand that's in focus. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Now, if you've ever wondered, what did the high priest do? What was the high priest's job? The high priest had one really, really important job one day of the year. 
on what we call the Day of Atonement, in which he made atonement for all of the people to cover their sins that had been committed throughout the entire previous calendar year. That was super important, and if he only ever did that one job, his job was well worth it, because otherwise they could have no enduring covenant relationship with the Lord. But the high priest had daily responsibilities as well. And the, the singular daily responsibility he had was tending the lamps on the lampstand. All right, now let's turn to chapter 30, also in Exodus. And we'll just read a single verse. Verse 7. And Aaron, and here this is talking about the altar of incense. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. So here was the high priest's daily responsibility. He was to get up, first of all, probably didn't have coffee. Um, He was then to go through an elaborate process of dressing himself in the vestments, the, the, the special clothing that only the high priest was allowed to wear. And all of that is highly symbolic to point forward to Christ. But before he could enter into the house of God, he had to dress in these, these special clothes. Then he walked into that public room on a daily basis. Only once a year was he allowed to go into the private room. And only him was allowed to go in. But on a daily basis, he went into the outer room and he had two responsibilities in the outer room. There were other Levitical priests that had other responsibilities in that outer room, but he only had one, or excuse me, two. One was he was to burn incense on the altar, but first he was to, as this passage describes, dress the lamps. Now, what does that mean? He was to dress the lamps so that they would burn as they should burn. It's not talking about some kind of uh, like putting little clothes around the lamps. It's, it's a word which literally translates as he was to please the lamps, which is kind of awkward wording. Aaron was to go in every day as the high priest and please the lamps. And it's, it's kind of a, what we call an anthropomorphism as, as to give human qualities to an ina- inanimate or non-human thing because you can't actually... P- You can't actually please a lamp, right? A lamp is just an inanimate object. But what it does mean is he's to get the lamp situated so that it can fulfill its pleasing purpose of why it's in the house of the Lord. And its pleasing purpose is to shine light on the entire house. Now, what would be involved in getting the lamp into a pleasing situation? There's basically two things that were involved. Let's go to our next passage, uh, Leviticus chapter 24. Two things that were to be done with the lamps on a daily basis. I'll read just the first four verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute 
forever throughout the generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. The word arrange that is used twice here means to set in order. And there were two practical aspects to setting the lamps in order on a daily basis. One, the high priest would go in and he would take each one of the seven lamps which were which were situated on top of the seven branches of the lampstand but were not welded to the lampstand. So they could the individual lamps could be removed. Why would you remove the lamp? He would remove the lamp and he would just practically look inside of it. And what's he looking for? What's the oil level? The lamp can only burn if it has oil in it. Need to have sufficient oil each day. You don't want to overfill it. You don't want to underfill it because the lamp was intended to burn throughout the duration of that day's business and on into the evening. So you had to have just the right amount of oil. So the first item on his daily responsibilities is just check the oil, please. You know, in the old days... You younger ones have no idea about this. But you used to be able to go into the gas station and some guy would come up to your car and he would say, uh, can I check the oil for you uh, as I'm filling your gas? Um, you know, those days are long gone. But the idea is the high priest was to check the oil level. Second responsibility, what also is involved? How do we get that oil to burn? There would be a wick that would be inside one end of the wick dipped into the oil, the other end of the wick that was kind of, that was kind of hanging outside the spout of the lamp. And once the oil was, was sufficient in the lamp and the wick was dipped into it, then they would take um, a light, a fire, and they would light the other end of the wick and it would begin to burn and it would burn throughout the day. So what, What did he do in relationship to the wick on a daily basis? He would check the wick. What are you checking? If the wick has burned too much the previous day, it's charred, and therefore the the part that's supposed to burn is not going to burn nearly as brightly as it should. And so the high priest would go in each day with scissors, and he would cut the wick. He would trim it to make sure that all of the charred, used-up portion is gone, and therefore the lamp is going to, each of the seven lamps is going to burn as sufficiently bright as what the Lord intends. So you have this double responsibility of the high priest. Now I'm going into all this historic background to emphasize why did the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 choose to first reveal himself to John as the one who was standing in the midst of the lampstands. He's emphasizing in symbolism to John that he is fulfilling the job that Aaron fulfilled in the Old Testament tabernacle. He is the high priest in the midst of the lampstands. Why is he in the midst? He is carrying out his heavenly high priestly responsibilities toward those lampstands. He's checking the lamps to make sure they're adequately filled with oil. And if they're not, fill them up. And he is trimming the wicks to make sure there's nothing dead and hindering the fully lit bright light that that lampstand is intended to produce in his house. Now, what happens next? Let's go back to the book of Revelation. Chapter 1. And I'll reread verse 20. And let's just pretend that between verse 20 
and chapter 2, verse 1, there's not a giant, bold number 2 in the text. Because as John originally wrote it, there was no number 2 in the text. So I'm just going to read chapter 1, verse 20, and flow right into chapter 2, verse 1. But I'm going to save the exposition of chapter 2, verse 1 for next week. As for the mystery, this is, again, the Lord speaking. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. And then he goes on to give other explanations and descriptions of what he sees in the church life of the church in Ephesus. What the Lord is doing in this vision is he's revealing himself as the great high priest who manages the lampstands that belong to him. They're his lampstands, they serve his purpose. And he has two primary jobs in relationship to his lampstands. That's to fill them up when they're, when they're empty and to trim away what doesn't belong. To cut away the dead stuff in order for the brightness of that lampstand and the lamps on it to shine as they are intended to shine. So what's on my heart to do over the next several weeks Uh, leading up to my leaving for Kenya, Lord willing, and probably we won't finish until maybe two or three studies after I get back, is to go through chapters two and three together in the book of Revelation, to do a mini-series over the next several weeks. I want to do, for each one of these seven letters, because that's what we have in chapters two and three, we have seven letters to the identified seven churches, starting with Ephesus, ending with Laodicea. They're short letters. They're the shortest and most compact letters of all of the New Testament letters written to the churches. We should be able to do one study per letter and focus our attention as we do on what the Lord has to say to these seven churches. Now, there has been in in the history of Bible teaching, New Testament Bible teaching, um, consideration of the book of Revelation, and specifically expositing these seven uh, letters to these seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. There's been some disagreement among theologians as to how we should interpret these letters, how we should understand them, how we should possibly apply them to us. So I'm going to just say it the most direct way I can say it. There's a right way to understand these seven letters and a wrong way to understand it. And I'll tell you what the wrong way is right up front. You may have even read about this before, but with whatever best intentions someone originally came up with this idea it was what i would call a harebrained understanding of what is meant to be taken away from these letters there are many many who teach and believe that these seven letters represent seven distinct ages of church history that they symbolically represent pointing forward in history to seven distinct time periods for the next 2,000 years of church history, with Ephesus being what we would call the early church, and Laodicea generally portrayed as, that's the age of the church that we live in right now. The idea being that Laodicea is the only letter that really applies to us today. And 
again, there was probably good intentions in coming up with this scheme, but it's, it's not anywhere hinted at in the book of Revelation or anywhere else in God's word that we should read them in that way. And there's a very, very strong reason that we should not read them that way. What is the strong reason? There's a pattern, and I'll, I'll identify all the details of the pattern in just a moment. There's a pattern to all seven of these letters. They all follow the exact same format. They all follow the same exact pattern of letter. And all of them end in the same way. And this is how they end. Let's look at the end of the letter to the Ephesians. Verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now let's skip down to the end of the letter to Smyrna, the church in Smyrna. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if we had time, I would just go through all seven letters and and point out, we will when we go through them, point out the specific verses where that line is repeated seven times. Because it's It's the conclusion of what the Lord has to say to each one of these cities, each one of these churches that are situated in these seven cities. Each one of these lampstands hears the same conclusion. If you've got an ear, which means if you're listening to the Lord at all, stop and pay attention to what the Lord has just said to the Ephesian church. But when he speaks to the Ephesian church, he says, now this message is just for you guys. He says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each letter is meant to be applied to all churches. That stretches over 2,000 years so far of church history. So all seven letters apply to us. How do they apply to us? That's for us to discern. We can't assume that everything that the Lord says to the Ephesians applies directly to us, but everything he says to them is for our benefit. It's for our understanding, for us to be aware of what it is that the Lord likes about the Ephesian church and what it is that he doesn't like. And there are both elements in what he says to them, as is true for each one of the seven letters, with only one exception. We'll get into this later. There's one church that he has nothing critical to say to whatsoever. But for all of the churches, save that one, he has critical things to say to them. Meaning, I don't like what I see among you. And then he has encouraging things to say to them when he sees something in the life of the church that he says, this is what I'm after. This is what matters to me. This is what I'm concerned about. I see you're doing it. So good for you. Keep going. Make that even stronger among you. But then be aware of these things that I do not like at all and get rid of that stuff and stop doing that. Pay attention to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So that's how we're going to look at these seven letters. All seven speak to us. It's not just the letter to the Laodiceans. And what we're looking for is what I can only describe as a heavenly evaluation of the church. The church through the Lord's eyes, and that's ultimately all that matters. On the final day, there's going to be lots and lots of churches represented before the throne of God. And yes, we will be judged individually. But right now in history, the Lord is evaluating all that identify themselves as churches. And he sees a lot that pleases him, and he sees a lot that displeases him. And 
on that day, all that will ultimately matter. And on this day, all that ultimately matters is, are we pleasing him? Why else are we here? What else are we doing as a gathering of God's people unless we're building according to the blueprint that's in the heart and mind of the Lord for what church is supposed to really all be about? Now, I said there's a pattern that we're going to be looking for. It's a singular pattern that's going to apply to all seven letters. There are five distinct elements in each one of these letters to the seven churches. First, the Lord identifies himself. And he interestingly identifies himself a little bit differently in each one of the seven letters. So we're going to be looking at that because we're going to learn more about the Lord of the lampstands by how he introduces himself to each one of the churches. What's amazing to me is he felt the need to introduce himself again to the churches, all of them, even the one that was pleasing to him. He reintroduced himself by calling attention to certain specific attributes and characteristics of who he is. So we need to, we need to see the Lord more fully in those introductions. Second, the Lord is going to, in each one of the letters, identify what pleases him. And, and awesome, just the awesome concept of, you know, as the Lord looks at, at us, does he see anything that's actually pleasing to him? And if he does, we're meant to be encouraged by that. I see that as corresponding to him filling the lamps with fresh oil. Encouragement. Encouragement about what we're doing as a church that belongs to him. Next, the Lord identifies what displeases him, what he's critical of. Um, what do we do when we see things? And we may see things as we're studying through this together. You know what? The Lord is pleased with this among us, but he's not so happy about this. What are we to do when we see something in our church life that's not pleasing to him? We're to repent of it and get rid of it. Stop it. Cut it off. Change it. You know, um, just this last month, and I'll make this real brief, but just this last month, the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches, which is a huge denomination, historic denomination in this country of churches, went through this, this traumatic evaluation of, of what church life is meant to be like according to the Lord's blueprint. And they ended up kicking out of their convention the single largest church in their whole convention, which is a gigantic church down in Orange County called Saddleback. Uh, the purpose-driven Rick Warren, previously Rick Warren-led church. Southern Baptist Church said, we don't want you part of our convention anymore. Why? Well, um, as Rick Warren has just, uh, he's just retired from, you know, uh, pastoral ministry, he chose his replacement, and he chose a husband and wife pastoral team, meaning the husband is the pastor of the church, the wife's the pastor of the church. And the Southern Baptist Convention said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, just a second. Let, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Let's consider what the scripture has to say about this. And it led to a whole big turmoil. And it's not just the one church. There were, there were several others that, that literally chose to leave the convention because of the decision that was made about Saddleback. But this was all the Lord's hand and work because of how he evaluates how church life should be done. Uh, a second example real quick. Uh, just this last week, I was reading an article that one of the leading bishops in the Church of England, which is a historic 
um, denomination going all the way back to the days of Henry VIII in, in English history. The Church of England, uh, the, one of the leading bishops of the Church of England, uh, announced that he thinks that they should go through a reevaluation process of how they relate to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And his concern was this how the Lord's Prayer starts. How does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven, or our, in, in modern terms, our Father who is in heaven. His issue was he felt like, you know what, I'm not so comfortable. We need to edit that. Well, we shouldn't be saying our Father who is in heaven because that's, isn't that patriarchal? And isn't that excluding the, the, the female part of our church life and, and population? And, you know, so essentially what he was arguing for, we need to edit the words of Jesus. He taught his disciples to pray this way, but I know better than Jesus knew because maybe he lived in a different culture. We live in a, a new culture, a, a changing, evolving culture. And I'm more concerned, essentially what he was saying is, I'm more concerned with the evaluation of the culture that surrounds us than I am with the evaluation of the one who sits on the throne and who stands in the midst of the lampstands. So those are two obvious examples, but I, want, I just want you to understand there are things to consider as we go through these letters that speak to us about whether we're walking in a manner as a church that pleases him. So the fourth of these five elements is the Lord gives a final promise of hope to all of the churches, which is wonderful. Even if he criticizes them and has some strong things to say to them, which he does in a couple of cases, very strong, he gives them a final promise of hope, something for them to anchor their hearts to, for those especially who are going to remain true to the Lord in those churches. And then finally, he gives the same final exhortation to all the churches that I've already highlighted. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So uh, let's end our study today on that note. And um, join me, if you would, in not this moment, but over the next few weeks in praying for what the Lord may want to accomplish as we read through these seven letters to these seven churches in terms of our evaluation of whether the Lord is pleased or displeased with what he sees in Tree of Life. God bless you.